0: welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by another editor-at-large, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And today, we're speaking with Jacqueline Rose about her new book, On Violence and On Violence Against Women.
1: Yeah. There's a lot in this book to talk about, um, as listeners might Deduce from the the title. So we tried, we tried our best to cover as much as we could, because there's so much here about the different kinds of violence that exist in the world, the ways in which violence against women connects with racial violence. There's politics, there's history, there's psychoanalysis. We gave it a shot, Kate.
0: Yeah, we did, but... (laughs) Didn't get to everything, um, to say the least, but it was still uh, really a dream to speak with Jacqueline. And I was less intimidated than I thought I would have been because just by her intellect alone, I already felt pretty intimidated. But she was yeah. lovely. She was lovely. She was lovely. And because
1: it's sort of a long interview, maybe we should just get right to it.
0: I agree. We're so honored to be speaking with the writer Jacqueline Rose today. Rose is the co-director of the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities at the University of London, which is where she's joining us from, a co-founder of the organization Independent Jewish Voices and a fellow of the British Academy. She's also a regular contributor to the LRB and The Guardian and the author of numerous books that meet at the intersection of feminism, psychoanalysis, literature and politics and include, to name just a very few, The Haunting of Sylvia Plath, The Question of Zion, Women in Dark Times, and Mothers, an Essay on Love and Cruelty, which came out in 2018. She joins us to discuss her newest book on violence and on violence against women. a continuation of her piercing inquiry into the place of women and others on the gender spectrum in the world, the book takes a stance that violence in our times thrives on a form of mental blindness. With both psychological insight and hard data, Rose elucidates some of the hazier, more brutal realms where violence is thriving, from sexual harassment and assault on college campuses to the epidemic of trans murders, the support for politicians like Trump and Bolsonaro, and the femicides of South Africa. Rose calls on thinkers such as Hannah Arendt and Melanie Klein, as well as a host of contemporary novelists, and despite its subject matter, I found it a very hopeful book, with many a call to action, and I'll stop there so we can get into it. Welcome, Jacqueline, and thanks again for being here.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure.
1: Jacqueline, so I wanted to begin. So the book, as Kate mentioned, is called On Violence and On Violence Against Women. And I wanted to begin, this is going to be a big question, but it's also, I think, the beginning, which is how do you think about violence when you think about it? (laughs) And how do you imagine it when you think about approaching it and talking about it?
2: Well, it's very interesting the way you've phrase that because on the one hand your question suggests or comes up against the fact that of course most people spend a lot of their time trying not to think about violence because it is literally too grisly and too unbearable and there is also a way in which thinking about violence trying to understand it trying to come to grips with it trying to theorize it can be a defensive weapon a form of denial against violence itself because it makes it into an object that's malleable and available to thought. At the same time, I really do believe that there is another relationship between violence and thinking, and that is the relationship of the need to pause for thought, to take time for thought, and to allow for the difficulty of thinking as an alternative to violence. And one of the starkest instances of this in the book is in the essay on Reva Steenkamp, who was, as you will all know, murdered by Oscar Pistorius. And after we had trawled through all the determinants of this hideous act of violence, the racial determinants, the confused gender determinants, the disability question, I mean, there was nothing that was not in this case. We were left with an opposition between guns and thinking because he justified himself in the court by saying, I did it, I did not have time to think. I did it without thinking. And I felt unbeknownst to him, he had offered up to the courtroom the most graphic display of how a certain kind of violence is a way of not reckoning with the complexity of the human heart, not reckoning with inequality, not reckoning with privilege. And in order to dispense with these things, which are so pressing and so anxious, violence comes as the riposte. And I think that would be of extended validity. Though people commit violence, war crimes against women, rape against, rape as a war crime, is often an act of vicious ethnic cleansing as it was in Serbia. We is say you rape the women in order to pollute their blood and also to inseminate them with Serbian blood. But of course, what you've done is you've mixed the blood. What you've actually done is the opposite of ethnic cleansing. It's the opposite of purification. You've produced an inmixing of something which the whole war is designated to keep apart. So that would be another example where there's a kind of blind action, which if one could pause and think about what the false ideals are, that we're trying to preserve by enacting violence, then maybe the necessity to enact it might reduce a little bit. But you've touched on something. I'll just say one other thing, which is there is a problem running through this book and for any feminist who chooses to write about violence, which is that you have to talk about it. And there's always the risk that you're playing into the pleasures of the voyeur and that you're incrementally making it more present and more manageable. And that isn't a good thing either.
0: Well, yeah, let's talk about that, because that was something I noticed immediately in your discussion of the Pistorius trial, is that instead of leading us immediately into the grisly details of the case, you start actually with the judge. So you make the case so much richer in all the kind of resonances of her position and the history of, you know, apartheid in South Africa and You don't immediately take us to the the very very lurid details, and that's something you write about trying to avoid, and saying that you didn't want to turn sexual violence into the crime we love to hate. And I'm just you know wondered why do we love to hate this crime, and how did you, in writing this book that's all about violence, avoid
2: glorifying it? Well, it's not for me to say if I avoided it. I hope I did, right? But I think the chapter in which it became most worrying for me was the chapter that's called At the Border, because I make it very clear in the key theoretical chapter, which is called Feminism and the Abomination of Violence, that I do not want to fall into the trap of listing a litany of grievances on behalf of women, because I think that traps women in the cycle of violence. Just as talking about me too, risk putting women back on the red carpet, being looked at and being ogled at, exactly what precipitates the crisis in the first place. But I realized when I was describing what's happening to women at the border, both in Mexico, but also elsewhere in the UK, in the heart of Europe, that there was no way of talking about it because it was not and is still hardly being spoken about no way of talking about it without describing what, for example, the Yarl's Wood, which is one of the detention centres, guards were doing to the women, right? There was no way of avoiding it because the point was to expose something. And that is the task of a certain kind of feminist journalism. And I'm thinking here, I'm sure you have your equivalents, but I'm thinking of Natasha Walter and Amelia Gentleman in the UK who really spent a lot of time exposing the dire, inhuman vicious conditions of the UK's hostile environment against women and what I discovered is the way that sexualizes itself which is say if you degrade people to that extent if you make them unwelcome if you say they're not humans who can actually come and be looked after on the shores of the UK if you do that then it's going to start sexualizing itself as Octavia Cortez found out when she found there were all these memes going around talking about her sexually when she'd exposed the treatment of migrants on the Mexican border. So I would say I avoid it, and at moments I feel I don't. And I found that chapter very difficult to do. I remember discussing with one of my editors, it's a litany, because I'm trying to say, look at this, look at it, it needs to be known about. That's based on the assumption, of course, that if people see these things, they will recoil and that that will have political effects. But the crime everybody loves to hate and your experience with Trump, who can I just please say how grateful we are that you got rid of him for now, at least. Right. So thank you from this side of the pond. Your experience with Trump is that there's a kind of revulsion against a certain form of flagrant, masculine violence and rhetoric which seems not only not to put off a huge swathe of the population in your country but actually is compelling and i think trying to write this book was my attempt to try and do two things at once which say that for example in relationship to me too violence must stop the law must intervene but also we are complex fraught internally lawless human subjects. That is what it is to be a human subject. So we can't just point at the 70 million people who voted for Trump and say they're idiots any more than we can say that about the even more numbers who voted for him in 2016. You have to understand what the compulsion is. And we're having the same thing now with Boris Johnson, our prime minister. You're doing much better than us, by the way. You got rid of Trump. Boris Johnson just had a landslide. And this was after exposures of the most dire behaviour, including at least one act of violence several years ago, where he was involved in a journalist paying somebody off to beat somebody up, and he was making the connection. It's known. It's in the public domain. The lawyers couldn't take it out of the book because everybody knows it. So he is the bad boy. He's the naughty boy who gets away with it. So there is a kind of perverse pleasure in violence. And I think we have to, we have to try and talk about it without reproducing it. That's the aim. It's not for me to say whether I succeeded in it or not. Maybe I could I ask a follow-up on
0: that question, which is, so here I feel like one of the recipes for violence is in your words, the ability to inflict untold damage, which I read as power to also in your words, the will distortion, whether conscious or unconscious in the field of vision, which I took as ignorance. So that relationship that people could be attracted, you know, to Trump or Johnson, despite or, you know, because of what to me seems kind of like a flaunting of power, that they don't have to follow the rules because they're so powerful, you know, that that could attract people. What do you think that has to do then also with things that we don't want to look at? And also, there's a lot of discussion in the book of kind of the waning of power leading to violence and the performance of masculinity, which you call here a fraud, which I got very excited about. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that.
2: Oh, well, your question covers everything, so I'll try and respond to it. Uh, The flaunting of power is good, I think, but I would want to add one thing, that power flaunts itself in direct proportion to its knowing that it has no foundation. And this was Hannah Arendt's brilliant, still for me, unsurpassed distinction between violence and power, which is there is legitimate power, which is the power of the police, which is the power of democracy, which is the power of the laws that are needed to regulate the organisation of the state and the nation. There's a power that can be a benign power. I remember once writing a reference for a student who wanted to go into a creative writing course and she used my name and it worked. And I said to her, that's benign power. We got you in. That's fantastic. Okay, so power, Arendt is not against power. She says violence happens when power knows it's on a losing wicket, which is a cricket term, by the way. Violence happens when power knows that it has not got a leg to stand on. Now, there are a number of instances in the book where this is absolutely flagrant. And saying somebody doesn't have a leg to stand on, of course, would be a description of Oscar Pistorius. But it's also a description of Harvey Weinstein as he chose to exploit it in the courtroom when he arrived on his Zimmer frame, right? And then three days later, he was seen walking around a supermarket completely unaided. But even more interesting were the witnesses who said about Weinstein that his greatest pleasure was in the thrill of the resistance and the fact that he could take literally hours to seduce women who he trapped in his hotel room. And then it was all over in like two seconds. So it wasn't about sex. It was about frightening people and controlling them. And then there was a moment in the courtroom sequence, which I just think is so astounding, when one of the women he'd abused said, actually, he doesn't have testicles. And pictures were passed around the courtroom as if this flagrant demonstration of the worst affirmation of male power rested on a lie. Now, I'm not saying we know the truth about that, but I just thought it was so counterintuitive that this erupted in the courtroom. A bit like when Oscar Pistorius, the defense, choose to argue that the screams of the woman that four witnesses heard when Riva Steenkamp was shot were not the woman screaming, because then he would have known there was a woman in the toilet when he shot her. It was not the woman screaming. Oscar Pistorius, when he screams, sounds like a woman. So this extraordinary man who was the Blade Runner who stood for prowess and for the redemption of South Africa through sport as a damaged, wounded, traumatized nation. That's already, it was much too much of a burden on him. That's what he stood for. And then in the courtroom, you suddenly have circulating the idea that actually this heroic, muscular creature somewhere is more happy to be a woman than to be a man who kills, right? So something just starts to disintegrate in front of your eyes, which of course leads to the whole trans- question, which is, so what I'm trying to say is that somewhere behind the power of men or the power of people in positions of power is a knowledge, to put it much more simply, of mortality, frailty, fear, sickness, pandemic, war, death. So the violence against women has shot up in the pandemic in the UK. I don't know what the figures are in the States. It has shot up And one of the reasons why I think it has is because women are not saving men anymore from their mortality. There are too many people dying. So the function of women is collapsing. It's a lie in any case, as I discuss in my book on mothers, that women should make the world safe. It's a complete fiasco, as any mother will say. Nonetheless, it's what they're meant to do. And when they fail to do it, that is to say, when men suddenly are up against the fact that there are things they cannot escape, they start killing women the death rate of women in domestic abuse cases has risen exponentially under the pandemic. So I feel there is a general picture here of something to do with the human condition, if I can use that expression, which women are often as mothers or as lovers or as wives or as domestic partners being asked to foreclose. And when they fail, they get viciously punished for it but it does give us a little opening, which is to try and create a world in which the nonsense of that notion of power and the precariousness of everybody, to use Judith Butler, she's written a whole book on this precarious life, would be something we all manage to live with. It would make, I think, a huge difference. I don't know if I've answered your question. I got a bit sidetracked there.
1: Well, so there was a lot, a lot there. I wonder if, you know, so one of the ways in which you discuss, you move from this discussion of Weinstein and sexual harassment and the ways in which masculinity and the waning of power often manifests itself in violence towards women is you go on to a discussion of trans women and the violence against trans women. And one of the interesting things that I think you point out in that chapter is not just the desire to be with someone, but the desire to be someone. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit in the ways in which, so to make it more concrete for listeners who have not read the chapter, you begin the discussion by talking about a famous case in England where a man is getting a divorce from his trans wife, uh, male to female. And one of the ways in which he articulates His relationship to her is quite clearly, I think, and you point this out in a sort of a close reading of his statements, is that she sort of manifests what he wants, what he wants to be, not just what he wants to lie next to in bed. And that there's a way in which what he enacts towards her is a manifestation of his wanting to be her. And so I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit and how this wanting to be the other person relates to the kind of violence that you discuss in that chapter and how you conceptualize the relationship between these. Because I think there's also, and maybe this is sort of shooting off in a different direction, but I think there's also a way in which that wanting to be the other person connects with the pleasure of the bad boy, of watching somebody enact power and wanting to be a part of that inaction, of wanting to be the person who gets away with that kind of stuff and part of that being the real draw to people like Trump and Boris Johnson, where we don't just want to be with them. It's not just the pleasure of being around them. Speaking for other people, I'm not sure, that I gather much, much pleasure in that experience, but the pleasure of wanting to be them in some capacity.
2: Okay, let's start at the end of your question. (laughs) These are very, very probing and insightful questions. And I really appreciate your reading of the book with the care that you have. Let's start at the end of that. Hannah Arendt says famously that the problem under the Third Reich was that good becomes the temptation that man has to resist, and that constitutes the moral perversion of the universe of Hitlerism. That is to say, it becomes a temptation, it becomes a pull, it becomes a draw. And I think you're touching on something... I think she's touching on something very profound, and so are you, which is that under regimes like Bolsonaro and Trump and Johnson, what they're really allowing to happen is for the unconscious to go marching on the streets. They're giving an internal license to people to reveal their inner secrets and no longer feel guilty about them, because there is no human subject on this earth who does not feel guilty for their dreams. There's no way around it, because, you know, civilization is civilization, you know, quote, unquote, as when Winston Churchill said to Gandhi, what do you think of British civilization? And he said, I think it would be a very good idea, right? I mean, so I'm using civilization in scare quotes, but Freud is a genius on this because his civilization renders people absolutely abject, incompetent, frigid, impotent, useless. It makes people quite incapable, men and women, fulfilling the roles it's meant to be imposing. So if you allow for the fact that we're always in a struggle with the internal law inside our head, then figures like Bolsonaro and and Trump, of course, said, you know, my people could bathe in excrement and they would come out unscathed, which just raises a couple of questions. I mean, one is, you know, what a frightening image at a time when hygiene is literally a life and death matter. And secondly, why would his people want to bathe in excrement? I mean, what is he actually, you know, it's completely insane. I mean, it's as insane as him saying... I had five children and unfortunately I didn't concentrate with the last one and it came out a girl. You know, I mean, the ability to throw this stuff around and not get punished for it, although I think he is getting punished, but that's probably for the death rate. But then again, you have to say in relationship to England's elections, the UK elections this three days ago, we had the worst death rate in Europe, the worst, and yet Johnson is getting away with it despite the glitzy curtains, which she's been cheating the taxpayer on. In fact, it's not despite, it's because it's the drossing of temptation that is so tempting. So that's the first thing I'd want to say in reply to your question, but let's go to trans. Because I think April Ashley's husband, who was called Arthur Corbett and who was a member of the aristocracy, took her to court for a divorce on the grounds that she was not a woman. And it did emerge, as you've said so graphically, that actually he was also a transvestite. He wasn't transsexual, he was a transvestite. And his rage against her was an envious attack, which is to say that she'd gone so much further than he could ever hope to do so. And what that seemed to me to just spark off was something which somebody like the wonderful trans activist Kate Bornstein would just say straight out. It's not who you go to bed with, it's who you go to bed as, which is to say that trans reveals, if you like, that before we start desiring anybody sexually, there is the question of sexual identity. And this is, again, where I would still say psychoanalysis is very progressive, because psychoanalysis, if you're a Freudian, says the child is born polymorphous and perverse. It doesn't have a male or female sexual identity it has to be marched into that identity at huge cost to the plethora of potential sexual pleasures and identifications that might've been possible. So sexual identity is fraudulent. And you know as Freud said, nobody gets into bed with somebody else without at least four people being present. But of course that's not circulating in the general culture. So we're all in a sense trans in the sense that we're moving back and forth across a divide that has the status of law. And this is why I think trans is such an extraordinary development of our time. First of all, there have been trans people throughout history. And you could really say the last 100 years has been incredibly retrogressive and thinking it wasn't around. It's not there's some weird explosion now. Something is being allowed to be spoken. And it's about sexual identity and whether you want it or not. So the split between the Kate Bornsteins of this world who oscillates across the divide, back and Susan Stryker, I love them both, back and forth across the divide, combinations of identities ad infinitum, right? And somebody no less moving like Jay Prosser, for whom the journey was from female to male. That's the journey that he wanted to go on. So that can be seen as a consolidation of sexual difference, but not without him asking the question. And it's a question that once we all get through to puberty, and even before, nobody's meant to be asking, right? So I think to turn the question of sexual difference into a question of identity, exactly who do you want to be, or who do you think you are, I think is something we should all be really embracing and welcoming.
0: You're listening to the Larb Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Jacqueline Rose, author of On Violence and On Violence Against Women. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation.
1: We have Larissa Pham on the line with us today. Larissa's new book is called Pop Song, Adventures in Art and Intimacy. And she is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Larissa, what book are you going to recommend? I'm
3: going to recommend A Girl's Story by Annie Ernaux which came out last year. It absolutely blew me away when I read it.
1: Okay. Can you tell us more about it? How did you discover it?
3: Yeah. Well, I'm in grad school right now and (laughs) I'm getting my MFA in fiction at Bennington and we have to read a bunch every month. And one of my classmates was reading her and recommended a girl's story to me. And it is just like an amazing example of like I don't even know. It's it's not autofiction because it's not fictional, but it's like just an incredible memoir that's told in both first
1: and third person. Mm. Yeah. And it's it's a very slim book. Yeah, it is. Published yeah, it is. in the 40s, 50s, is that right? Um,
3: I think A Girl's Story is more recent, but I, yeah, at least it was published mind. in English in 2016. And what did you like about it? I really enjoyed seeing a writer look back at her past with an almost like dispassionate eye going so far as to write about herself in the third person and like just really, really examining her motives and who she was while also like in the act of writing the book, like grappling with her own memory and the narratives that she had for herself at the time.
1: Sounds really good. Will you um, tell us the title of the book again and the author?
3: Yeah, it's A Girl's Story by Annie Ernau.
1: Thank you so much, Larissa. Thank you. We've been speaking with Larissa Pham. Her new book is called Pop Song, Adventures in Art and Intimacy.
0: You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Jacqueline Rose, author of On Violence and On Violence Against Women. I wanted to ask about some of the riffs that you address in feminism, the book especially in regards to male sexuality so there are people like Andrea Dworkin yourself having some distance from and in the chapter that's about um you know sexual assault on college campuses there are other you know quote-unquote feminists who take a stance against more like litigation and regulation and kind of a decorum of sexual behavior and I of course just love conflict. And I'm so curious about within feminism, you know, how people could have such different opinions and especially in relation, you know, it's about male sexuality, but it's also about a codified idea of female sexuality that I I believe these thinkers are, they think they're fighting against, which is that of course, women can be just as dirty and disgusting and perverted as men. Don't tell us they can't. So I, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and where you fit in compared to someone like Dworkin.
2: Whoa, yeah, okay. Well, if writers like Emma McBride and Roxanne Gay are in this book, it's because they play dirty, especially Roxanne Gay. I think it's very, very important in the story that I discuss at the end of the chapter on trans. My husband is a hunter and I am the knife is the first line of the story. And she relishes in a certain kind of sexual almost cannibalistic violence and she's also a woman who's grieving the loss of a child that she wasn't allowed to grieve and in terms of what it does to bodies on the page it goes way beyond anything recognizable as an exchange I mean it's just so it's shocking there's another way to put it it's deeply shocking and there is one strand running through it which is that she is like this because of what has happened to her. But because Roxane Gay is such an interesting, risk-taking writer, her own violence as the narrator cannot be reduced to the terrible things that have happened to her. Because if they could, then it would be that women only behave in excess if something terrible has happened to them, rather than women behave in excess. Because as you've just rightly said, Kate, they have that capacity as much as men. And I'm not interested in the view of women as passive victims of men who are always out to get them. I don't find that helpful. Um, I think it's really important not to present the women who are on the receiving end of these acts of sexual violence as if they were only victims. I mean, as I've said elsewhere, victimhood is an event. It's something that happens to you. But the moment you turn it into an identity, political or psychic, I think you're finished right, because you're trapped. So I think one must distinguish between victimhood, this happened to me, and this is who I am. I think one really has to try and keep them apart. Plus, and I know who you're referring to when you talk about the, the trans, the Me Too essay, I just, on my basis of reading and talking to people who've been involved in anti-harassment activism, these young students were not passive. They weren't lying down on the train rails waiting to be run over. They were protesting. They were demanding that harassers be exposed. They said in one of their letters at Goldsmiths College, it is the curiosity that brought us to university and our search for the truth and our right to knowledge, which is leading us to expose this man as a sexual harasser. I say they were determined to show that their activism and their cry against injustice were compatible with each other. And so was an image of them as thinking, acting women. So, I don't accept that if you say this is awful and must stop, you are resubordinating women. I just don't think that's true. Having said that, there is a paradox here. I and mean, you're absolutely right, or a difficulty, which is I want Chauvin to go down for 40 years, right? And I was delighted when Weinstein went down for 23. No question. These things must stop and the law must intervene. On the other hand, you don't have to read Fanon's Black Skins, White Mask, although we all should be reading and rereading it, to know that the passage of racial difference through the mind and hearts and bodies of subjects on both sides of the divide is complex, fraught, and mm-hmm. visceral. And in relationship to sexuality, two things are true. Sexual violence must be met with the force of the law, but sexuality is lawless. And I think the problem is we're often given the false choice of choosing between one or other of those two things. And it has led to an extraordinary new development in the trans community, people like Dean Spade calling for trans people not just to fight to expose the violence against trans, but also to abolish prisons. Right. As I say, a lot of them are now on the side of abolitionism because they believe the last thing a progressive movement like trans should do is be on the side of the increasingly carceral state, which of course is also a racist state. So it leads, there's a line that leads straight from here to George Floyd. So I suppose, you know, this is why I'm so glad I have the time and the space to write. What I want to do in all these essays is bring up all these sides of the argument and to say our greatest challenge and I see it as a creative challenge which I'm really feel so pleased to be part of is to think things that normally don't belong together and try and say more than one thing at once and not to feel as we said in the 70s which is where my feminism began you know not to feel that because you're asking for equal pay or going on a march for abortion rights that you can't also sit and talk about the complexities of your identity as a woman and your sexual fears and your sexual history. In fact, that's what's so, this is my argument in Women in Dark Times, that what women women bring, what feminism brings to the political table is the complexity of sexual life. That's what it does, as well as a cry against injustice. So I'm always trying to work on both fronts at once. And it's not for me to say whether it works or not. You know, that's my plea, if you like.
1: Well, I think one of the you know, one of the things that you discuss in this book that's connected to all of these different threads that we're talking about, which is race, sexual violence, sexual lawlessness, the pleasures of sexuality, and the policing of those, is capitalism. <laughs> I'm sorry to be tossing such such enormous questions at you, but I, but I think this book really touches on so many. But what's one of the through lines that you have in this book, which is the ways in which capitalism enforces violence and makes it invisible there are times when we can see it and and it becomes visible but that there's an invisibility of the kind of violence that capitalism perpetuates and that seems to be certainly one of the ways in which um, racialized violence happens in the United States but sexual violence as well and when you know when we talk about trans lives the violence that is impacts trans lives one of the aspects of that is there's only so many ways in which a trans person can exist in a capitalist system. And one of those ways in constantly puts them in danger of violence and bodily harm. So do you mind talking a little bit about how capitalism relates to these questions and how it sort of pervades them? Because it does seem to be one of the central ways in which that kind of violence, again, and, you know, talking about jails and the carceral system, that capitalism is very much a part of that here. That uh, one of the ways in which capitalism perpetuates these forms and these contradictions and sort of perpetuates some of the ways in which we are forced to sort of choose.
2: Well, well where should we go? complicated. <laughs> well, the question of firing is important and goes to the heart. I opened the book on mothers with one of the most chilling statistics imaginable, which is that 54,000 women a year are sacked in the UK for being pregnant or just having had a baby. It's not technically legal, but there's a loophole. So they are all dispensed with their disposable bodies. And what I also say in that book is that, you know, I had a friend who just had a baby and who was talking about her, she wanted a second child, so she thought she'd go back to work for a year and then she'd get her maternity leave again and she'd have a second child. But I can't do that because the firm will think I'm exploiting them. And the idea that the law should be on the side of facilitating her making of the family she wanted to make or that her firm was in fact completely dependent on women having babies had not crossed her mind. The thing was that she had to strategically negotiate herself to be, to be as unobtrusive and as little an obstacle to the smooth running of the firm as possible. And I just found that very, very chilling. Plus the fact, of course, that when you talk about working mothers, you don't mean mothers who bring their babies to work, right? It's the last thing you mean. You mean mothers who work and who have a nanny and then who come in and lean in, as Cheryl Sandberg in her dreadfully titled book suggests to you, which is to say that the firm is the place where the detritus, and Arendt is brilliant on this, the mess of natality and birth and breathing and pissing. None of that must be seen. Capitalism has a conception of the body which is purified of all of that. Now, um, one of the things I was thinking of when you were speaking was um, that capitalism is absolutely at the heart of what I'm talking about. So, for example, when does Me Too become on the front page of the papers? It's when all the Hollywood actresses start to talk about it. But 50,000, I think it was 50,000 or more farm workers wrote to some of these Hollywood stars in the course of the year in which it became famous and said, listen, we have been protesting about this and our conditions of work and the ways in which we're exploited for the last five or 10 years. And in fact, the woman who founded Me Too, who was a woman of color, That was about seven years before it got into the public press. So even in the process of exposing something so flagrantly, you're reinforcing the social divisions of a culture in which women are commodities or they're nothing or they're workers or they're nothing. And I think that, you know, one of my heroines is Rosa Luxemburg. And one of my favourite quotes from her is when she was challenged in Mannheim in 1905 about the first Russian revolution and the shedding of blood. And I use this quote prominently in the book where she just says, you are not talking about the violence under the quiet conditions of capitalism. You're not talking about the people killed in the mines, killed in the factories, killed of starvation and leading lives that are absolutely impossible to live. So capitalism thrives on disposable bodies and some of those get glimpsed in these moments of conflict, they're there, but it takes a certain kind of work and a certain kind of attention. And Black Lives Matters are absolutely crucial in this to say, actually, this is not peripheral, it's not marginal, it's at the... That's what institutional racism means. It doesn't just mean that racism is inscribed in the institution. It also means the institutions are dependent on racism to function. So yes, I think your question is brilliant. And it just makes me think how much more work there is to be done, how much more exposing of this and making those connections. So it's crucial what you just said, thank you.
0: You know, along those lines, I wanted to talk about, just to start to wrap up about South Africa, the connection to the apartheid past of South Africa and the current kind of epidemic of femicides there. And you draw those together really explicitly and the kind of continuous processing of violence that we would all need to do, the kind of you know, ever aware fight against the erasure and um, fight for, for clarity and fight for justice that, that is not just about one tribunal, that is about ongoing work. But I hadn't really thought that there could be as deep a connection as you draw here between a country's past Deeply racist past, and it's in a current problem with violence towards women. So, maybe you could just explain that a little bit.
2: Well, just to say that the South Africa chapters in the book are for me absolutely central because the perpetuation of racism in South Africa, I think, is one of the tragedies of the 21st century. Because I'm of a generation who, you know, played their tiny part in the struggle against apartheid and went on the demonstrations and went into the offices and took phone calls and, you know, once or twice. I mean, I wasn't a major activist. I don't want to imply that I was. But nonetheless, it was at the heart of my growing up, apartheid South Africa and the thrill of 1990 three and four, the thrill of the first democratic elections and what I think has to be described as a constitutional and political and legal revolution. I mean, you know, democracy was introduced into South Africa, but racism and material inequality has not been sufficiently addressed and for some people it's getting worse. And the demonstrations in 2015, the roads must fall protests, which lead straight to Bristol last summer in the UK when the statue of Coulson was thrown into the harbour. He was a slave owner. So the whole roads must fall thing has actually had repercussions across the world and linked up to the George Floyd killing I mean, it was just so heartbreaking, one to watch the failure of the new dispensation, which had done so much like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, to address the agony of apartheid. But then I think the mistake, if I can say this, and you know other people would say it, have much more to say than me on this because I'm not a participant. I'm responsible because I'm British. Even though I'm Jewish, British, and originally Polish, I'm sort of, feel guilty about this because it was Britain that started all this off. But the fact that what happened was that the equality, inequality was not um, solved, it was not resolved, and in some ways it got worse, then becomes a serious psychic dilemma when the next generation who were born after the end of apartheid and who were meant to be the born freeze. That's how they're called, the born Freeze. start to protest against injustice, start to say in relationship to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, truth is no substitute for justice. There has not been justice. There has not been redistribution of the economy. This was not, by the way, Nelson Mandela's fault. They had troops outside the door ready to start a civil war if he didn't take the mixed economy clause out of the Constitution. Right. So he really had a gun to his head. Uh, if you wanted to get the transformation to go through. But what I felt I've been witnessing in the last few years, and especially I discuss it in the chapter on the conference on the persistent trauma of apartheid, what I've been witnessing is what happens when violence has been so-called resolved at one level, but not at another, and that violence cannot be acknowledged because it's, it just wrecks the dream. You know, I mean, I've watched the excitement of what happened in South Africa and the exhilaration of that move into a kind of despair. And as more than one commentator has said, it is the increasing racial or the continuing racial inequality which has to be seen as accountable for the rise in attacks on women. The two things are not separable. So when the students are protesting about racism, they're also protesting about sexual violence. It's part of the same mix. So it feels like South Africa is a kind of test case for how these things are connected and how, how persistent they are and how difficult it is to resolve them.
0: Maybe just to close, ask about psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis makes so much seem possible in the book, and it's probing into ourselves and into what we think and giving us space just to think and to be listened to. Seems like that's part of the antidote to a lot of the violence that you're talking about. But then I also feel like just in terms of its place in, in mainstream culture, at least in America, I don't know about Britain, I can't say I feel like it's at the heart of things very much, which you know is unfortunate, possibly. So I wonder if where you see psychoanalysis Heading, if you feel like it will have a a renaissance of of some type in in the Western world, or if it will just be, you know, still for the people in the know.
2: Well, as you know, Freud's books were burned in Austria after the Anschluss. Hitler said quite clearly when we go into Vienna, I'm after the old man. I'd say the person he wanted out was Freud. And a book was published last year called Psychoanalysis and Totalitarianism, which argued basically that psychoanalysis is probably one of the most important anti-totalitarian movements that we have. And I think the book is a plea. My book is a plea for a more psychologically attuned culture. Because I do think if you can talk about the complexity of everybody's sexual life and the fragility of everybody's hearts and minds and the perverse desires that we all entertain then some of the acting out and performance of the forms of certainty, which are all complete lies, would abate. But you're absolutely right, Kate, to say that the practice of the clinic in which people go into private treatment is not sufficient to make this something which permeates the wider culture. And since I started reading Freud in my early 20s, I've always thought what I want to do and be when I grow up (laughs) is be someone who is continuing to insist that psychoanalysis has something important to say. Of course, Juliet Mitchell was the first, wrote in 1974, she wrote her book, Psychoanalysis and Feminism, in which she described it as the best analysis we have of the patriarchal injunction for girls to be girls and boys to be boys, to which some of us added, yes, and it's a fraud, nobody ever is. That's all we need. That's all we need from psychoanalysis, if you like, is just that relationship between the oppressiveness of the norm and the failure of the norm. And then I think you can move mountains. But how to get that into the wider culture is a very, very important question. There are writers, by the way, who become bestsellers, like Christopher Bolas and Stephen Gross and others who've been writing, and Darian Leder, who've been writing about psychoanalysis in a more... And he's been amazing, Darian Leader. I mean, you look at his book, Strictly Bipolar. It's a major intervention against the category of the bipolar as a kind of drugification of something that is to do with depression, loss, and pain, and that people would get better if they were allowed to have those feelings. So this is, this is political, right? Those kinds of interventions are very political. So I think we j- I would like to be part of that pathway. I think this book is, is a step towards that. So thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for being here, too.
2: Thank you. You've been great, both of you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Thank Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you. We've been speaking with Jacqueline Rose. Her
0: new book is On Violence and On Violence Against Women. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlatten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.